dedicate the Shia and the Divrei Torah and all those that will hear this tape, shed a tear for a young bride that uh, is being buried, Mamish, while the Shia will go on. Dini Mitachin of Staten Island, my student in uh, Midrashat Maria just a few years ago, and Mitachin family, a uh, family in which her own siblings, her own sister was my student, her first cousin was my student in the Kolel, uh, a slew of first cousins were my students uh, in Michala, Midrashat, uh, in all the schools I've taught, I've had uh, relatives of the greater Mitachin family. And I sadly bow my head before the Kaddish Baruch, who evidently needed her a lot more than we needed her hair. And uh, I also want to salute her husband, who was with her throughout these years, first as her boyfriend, afterwards marrying her just a few months ago, and uh, Brian, who uh, stood by her in every way possible. Uh, I, I salute you, believe the nefesh. Kaddish Baruch Hu should give us all comfort and we should know Mozart and uh, she should be her wonderful neshama should be a melitzi yeshera for all of Klal Yisrael and I dedicate the Shia in a moment of Aninat because it's even too early to speak in terms of Nichum and Avelet it's made to Mutolofonov but I dedicate the Shia in Dini's memory now we spoke last week about Simonim and I showed you how Rabbi Yitzchol Hanan's uh, viewpoints, he wasn't just satisfied to answer an individual tshuva, but he stated, this is the way I handled it, and this is the way I treated Simanim, and he literally paved the way for every posek who came after him, how to deal halachal of ma'isa to be matar and uh, there's... No one, when it comes to Heteragona, no one that uh, his name is in golden lights more than Ripsalchan Inspector. And the examples we gave last week and the week before with Simonim, then of course we went into photography. And photography too, uh, it's a new issue. We never had it before. We didn't have photography before. And nevertheless, we already found Makarat. He found Makarat. The Meshav Davidin at Siv found Makarat. As I mentioned, you have, of course, in Rosh Chodesh, today being Rosh Chodesh, you speak about the charts that Rabbi Gabriel had in his attic that he used to show to the Edom, Kazerita, Kazerita, but even more, more La'inyan is the women who came from Maratam, Kazeriti, Kazeriti, and you see that the charts could be good that they could identify from a picture. And Allah had come of a comma with photographs when we all know that a good photograph catches the image of a person and it certainly is very powerful evidence. It probably has the status of a Simon Mufak as long as people recognize the photograph. Allah had come of a comma when you can bring a photograph of the man Bechayav. And this was the epic making Shiva the Rebbe Sulchan Spector and the Meshav Dava the Rebbe Siva Velashin. And as I mentioned last week within Siva Velashin, it is true that time and again, we come back to the reality that he was the last great overwhelming Rosh Shiva who also was a focal posek. When you think uh, into the 20th century, it's very hard to find anyone who is both a world-class Rosh Shiva and a world-class posek. It just, uh, whatever the reasons are, whether Rav Chaim's at fault and uh, the Brisket Derech, uh, which conquered the Yeshiva world, but these were simply the facts. 
And even if you take, let's say, what we're closest with the United States scene, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was far a greater posek than a Rosh Yeshiva. In other words, his fame was as a posek. MTJ, Mesef Tavarit was a small yeshiva. It never was a major institution. Uh, if you take the Rav, uh, I don't think the most ardent Talmud of the Rav, who's, I mean, if, uh, Talmud Chacham, I'm not talking about people who don't know what learning is about, but I don't think anyone would ever say the Rav was a posek in the classic sense. Of course, the Rav Paskin, for me, for you, for those that were close to him, for the Maimonides crowd, for problems that came to him in Boston, but the Rav never wrote Tshuva, uh, Tzvarim, Psak in the classical sense. Uh, he was not a posek. Yet he was the greatest Rosh Hashiva of his time. And uh, all of you know that by the 70s, uh, from all the yeshivat, fellas came to study with him. They were distant from YU, distant from college, distant from his hashkafa, distant from the Western world. But they knew that the only place left in America where you could get real brisk was in the Rav's classroom. And that's what happened in the 70s. And you have a whole slew of names uh, of Chaim Berlin graduates and MTJ graduates who all gravitated to the Rav even after they had smicha from other institutions. They came and studied with the Rav and uh, that was brisk. But as a posek, there's no question that Moshe was by far the classic posek on the American scene. Uh, even on the Israeli scene, you'll take Rav Avadji Yosef, posek Mufak. There's no question that his forum will be utilized in, in, in thousands of years to come. But you wouldn't think of Avadji Yosef as a Rosh Yeshiva. You take uh, Rav Shach, who certainly is one of the classic Rosh Yeshiva, or Rabbi Sezalman Meltzer, who preceded Rav Shach as, as the classic Rosh Yeshiva on the Israeli scene. They're Rosh Yeshiva. They didn't leave a world of psak behind them. And it's fascinating uh, how how it divided up, and people can give theories. Again, a lot of people blame the Pine Briska, the Briska Derech. It's certainly partially true. Whether it's entirely true, I don't know. It may simply be that Psak became so overwhelming, and there's so much involved with science and, and modern uh, developments and technology, that it could very well be that Psak today, yes, it's, it's more than a full-time job. It's not like uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, where basically the world didn't change as rapidly as it changes today. It could very well be. I've often thought about this. Ralph Waldenberg, again, the Tzitzelias is another good example. He should be, well, he's not a youngster. He's not in good health. But the Tzitzelias was a Posek Mufak, a giant in Psak. And again, the Tzitz was not a Rosh Yeshiva. You'll take Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach, generations to come are going to, going to remember him as the posek rather than the man who was one of the Rosh Yeshiva of Kol Torah. And if you talk about Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach, here is an individual who mastered a good deal of science on his own, autodidactic, in order to deal with electricity. I think of all the modern poskim, the one who deals with electricity in the most depth is Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach. And, and, you know, the stories are legendary. If you, if you walk up to uh, Kikat Safat and you notice the um, Terra Sancta, the building that belongs to the Catholic Church, it's an unholy building. But for years, that building was rented by the Hebrew University. And following the Muhammad uh, HaShikrua, when they lost the campus on uh, Harad Salfim, that building became the Hebrew University. Are you aware of that? That for a number of years, too, Givat Rum was ready, 
that building was the Hebrew University. And Rabbi Shlomo Zalman used to stand on the corner. They're eyewitnesses. I mean, it's not ancient history. And when students walked out, he'd get students who were studying physics and studying mathematics, and he would discuss mathematical problems with them, physics problems with them, and when he saw that his answers were better than their answers, he knew that he was on the right track. So it may be. You see, no, what I just said now, no one has said before. And it's my own theory. And I don't know, it's a theory. When you say a theory, you don't know whether you're right. You have to think about it. But I'll tell you this. This theory, in, in my mind, I've been thinking about this already onto a decade. The more I see the new sperm and the new problems, the more I'm convinced I may be right. That everyone blames Reb Chaim. Reb Chaim, all right, played a certain role in taking Psak out of the yeshiva world with his, you know what we say, Reb Chaim, because of the multifaceted way that he could always see two derachim, two ways to go. You know what I've talked about it many times. Shnei dinim, what they call Shnei dinim. But it may simply be that today, in order to be a posek, one has to be a fantastic expert on much technical knowledge. And it's no longer a world where the transfer from the Rosh Yeshiva, who sang Sheyurim and Zikin and Nachim, where the transfer was very easy. In those days, the transfer from Nashim and, and to deal with Agunad, the Nitziv had no difficulty doing it. Today, the transfer with Nashim and deal with Agunad and deal with DNA, this requires a, a whole new world of knowledge. It may very well be. And you see, it's not enough. Sometimes people say, if you'll talk with people in the Haredi world, and I'm talking now, you know, on an intelligent level. I'm not talking on a back a backroom level. But when you talk on an intelligent level with intelligent people in the Haredi world, so you'll, you'll say to them, listen, how can anyone be a posek today without having gone to university, without knowing all this secular knowledge? So the answer you, you're absolutely right. And that's why the posek has to go to an expert in the field. And I was still agree to you, except their difference is, instead of being like you or being like the Rav, who, who went to university and mastered all the secular knowledge, they'll say, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein always went to Rabbi Moshe David Tenla for his medical input. Now, there is truth to that. But I'll tell you something. Inevitably, the posek who has the first-hand knowledge will be a better posek. Because ain't a daima when you get it from a klisheni to when you intuitively feel it yourself. And what made Reb Shlomo Zalman so important with Dine Shabbat and electricity is that he didn't need a klisheni. He himself understood the entire workings of the, of, of the, uh, phys, phys, the physical process. What's involved in electricity? How do you analyze it from the point of view of physics? Is it boner? Is there salter? Is there a magal? Is there binyan? Is there no lad? He understood it. And he was a klirishon. And I think intuitively, when you're going to deal with all the problems we have now, so, and DNA is a classic example, and, and everything that results from the breakdown of the chromosomes and what science can do, what they claim they can do, what they can do in theory, yet, what they may yet do in practice, there's no doubt in my mind that the post who has the first-hand knowledge will be the greatest post But be it as it may, then it serves as a fantastic example of, of the, of the Velashen of Rosh Yeshiva, not just the Velashen of Rosh Yeshiva. Again, you, some of you know that Rav Chaim, Rav Chaim Velashenah, Rav Yitzchak Velashenah, but under the Nitziv, Velashen achieved student-wise its greatest achievements, its greatest growth, its greatest claim to fame, its greatest graduates, and concomitantly, 
then it's with the posek, the rav of Velashen, the mesh of Dafa, and as I said to you last week, they turned to him from all over the world, including America, all over the world, including England. Here you have from Thames, the river, Scotland Yard. It's an amazing thing. And the Nitziv is still waiting. Uvo Gol he's still waiting. We still need a proper scientific biography and evaluation of the Nitziv. It's yet to be done. His uh, son left the memoir, uh, Rev. Mayor Berlin, from Berlin, uh, from, from, excuse me, from Veloshin Bis Yerushalayim, uh, it's been translated into Hebrew he wrote it in Yiddish first then it was translated into Hebrew it's a beautiful memoir but it's a memoir a memoir by nature is prejudiced this is why when Shulamit Meiselman's volume came out so all the hardheads were yelling it's prejudiced I, I looked at them I said what you, it's a memoir if I write if my work on the Rav is incorrect and it's written with a prejudice then you have every right to criticize me in the world because then my work is worthless. Because what I'm writing is scholarship. Scholarship has to be critically honest. As honest as I can make it. As honest as I can believe it to be. If I color it with my own feelings, I'm not a good scholar. What I'm writing, what I'm publishing is scholarship. She wrote a memoir. A memoir by nature is the way you see it. That's what a memoir is. No one takes that at absolute face value. But you can see her feelings, her prejudice, and it gives you a real life picture of the family. So you have Rav Meir Berlin's memoir. Certainly it has prejudice in it. You have the Makar Baruch, uh, who of course was part of the family. Have a great, great deal on the Nitziv in the Makar Baruch, as you know. Uh, you have the Masters done at Hebrew University by Hannah Katz. But we're still lacking the work that I had planned as a kid. See, it's an amazing thing that as a kid, I was, well, it was your age. And I finished my coursework outside of one course. And I went in, I'll never forget that, you know, Bernie Lander was the dean. I submitted a proposal. I don't have it in my records even. But I remember I wrote out what I wanted to do with the Nitziv. And I was a kid, but I figured, you know, the Nitziv, no one has written on. And, of course, two weeks later, they said, it's a nice proposal, but we have something else for you. And, of course, that shifted all my scholarship and shifted my life. But it's, I throw it out. Maybe I'll be Zeicha that one of my students will take up the gamut, take up the challenge. Okay. But with that being said, I, I want to go further. But it's an interesting what I just said now. Don't absorb it at face value. Think about it. The point I made with Psak Halacha is absolutely fascinating. Think about it. Where will we be 50 years from now? Who can paskin? The computer age. Who knows what we're heading for? Could very well be that there'll be a total separation between Rashi Yeshiva and Poskim, not because of Reb Chaim, but for the reasons I just gave. Can very well be that Poskim are going to have to attend Machon Lev, that every Posek will have to take two years a crash course at Machon Lev. It can very well be. It's just an overwhelming thought. And I, I may, I say may, I may be absolutely right. But it's fascinating what we have in the 19th into the 20th century, and now we go into the 21st century. So, don't blame it all on Reb Chaim. There may be truth to what one little honest Torah Jew is saying. Could be. I always say could be, because when you say a theory, I had a, I had a Rebbe in graduate school 
So he used to tell me, he was so, he used to say, uh, Professor Levine, Levin, Lewin, he used to call himself, Rabbi Yitzchak Lewin, he was the Reisha Rav's uh, grandson or son, the Reisha Rav's son. Now, you know, his son is the famous lawyer, uh, Nat Lewin, Nat Lewin's father. So I remember Professor Lewin used to say, whenever you have a theory, say you think you're right. Don't be arrogant enough. Even if you know you're right, even if you feel you're so right, it's so true, be humble. It's a theory. And I may be right, it's a theory. Think about it. But certainly, it stares you between the eyes in the state of Israel. Look at the poskim, look at the problems, look at the electricity. You see, even Rav Gorin, who was certainly one of the great poskim, Rav Gorin had a great world of scientific knowledge. He really was in scientific knowledge. By nature, he could never be a Rosh Hashiva. His personality was too volatile. He would explode. He, he had a temper. He, he could never be a Rosh Hashiva. But he never tried. He knew where he belonged. He was a perfect match for the army. The day he left the army was tragic because as a soldier, as a general giving orders, as a general knocking heads together, no one could do it better than, than Rav Gorin. But he was an excellent post and he could deal with problems, and he knew from within how it works. And, and this is what was unique about him. Okay, now, I want to show you one more source from Yitzchok and Inspector. It's a very famous source. Uh, this is from Ein Yitzchak Helekalef, Siman Chav Zayin. And, and in this Siman Chav Zayin, he has over 90 subdivisions. You cannot imagine all the effort he put into this contrast. And the question was a very fascinating question. It was about Maguna that 13 years didn't know about the whereabouts of her husband. Halach l'merachok, whatever that means. See, again, it's hard to tell. In our terms, what does it mean l'merachok? He may have gone from Lithuania to England. Today, from Lithuania to England, this is a two, two and a half hour plane trip. It's nothing. In those days, it was the end of the world. It's like the Rav. I have the Rav. I have it in my book. I, I quote the Rav word by word. And the Rav says, when his father accompanied him to the train in Warsaw to go to Berlin, uh, he said he never knew whether he'd see his father again. I mean, Jack said, well, what's going on here? Poland to Germany. Look at a map. But in those days, that's what it meant. When you went from Warsaw to Berlin, you never knew if you'd, you'd ever see your, your loved ones again. So I don't know what it means to America. You see, today, if you were reading this trivia, you'd say for sure, why well, he must have gone to America. doesn't necessarily mean that. But 13 years, didn't know anything. And nothing. Didn't contact her. And there was shalom between them. You know, all, everything we spoke about much earlier this year. And then an Eid Echad came. And the Eid Echad said, I heard from the father, in other words, her father-in-law, Avi Habal, the man who disappeared, I heard from his father, that he said his son died. Father. Eid Mipi Eid. The father testifying that the son died. And the Beitin permitted the woman to remarry. After they permitted her to remarry, they suddenly became very frightened. What will happen if the father will find out that this man testified, permitted her to remarry? 
and the father will come back and try to contradict the witness. And you have to understand here, there's a lot of human nature involved. I have to tell you, there's a lot of human nature involved. Uh, when death hits a family, there's some parents that resent when the surviving partner remarries. You understand? Intelligent people have to have the attitude, life has to go on. I mean, the tragedy that, I'm talk- that I spoke about a half hour ago, dedicated to Sheer in, uh, in Dini Matuchin's memory, I mean, I can't conceive that the family is going to say to him uh, not to remarry. He's a young man, and he was at Sadiq Yisod Olam, and Halavai, the first thing I asked when I heard the tragic news, uh, actually, I didn't have the student who called me Thursday night. The truth is, she shouldn't have called me because there was nothing to be accomplished by telling me Thursday night. I just didn't sleep all night. I could have waited till Friday to find out the tragic news. Just bear that in mind. Don't tell someone bad news. But I know she wanted to speak with me. I understand why she called me. She, she was simply, when tragedy happens, you want to talk one with the other. It's psychological. Those of you who have studied psychology, I remember when America Hunter died, I was in America, and I had just arrived in America that afternoon, and I was exhausted. I went 10 o'clock. The people I was staying with woke me up, staying in a very important uh, doctor's home, a good friend of mine, and he woke Aaron. Aaron Mayer was just assassinated a few blocks from where I was staying. At the, at the, what was it, the Waldorf Astoria, one of those famous sensei hotels there, and I know he wanted to talk. And then my students, the next morning, there were, all the doctors didn't work. Every doctor was checking in with me, and we were crying over the phone. He had psychologically. But still, think for a minute, all you can do is, the Rebbe's going to be aggravated, he's not going to sleep, obviously. So call him the next morning. But anyway, the next morning, I uh, called the girl's aunt. And my first question was, does she have a younger sister? You understand why I asked that? Because I was thinking maybe he would marry her younger sister. Uh, uh, you know, if, if it would be unbelievable. But she was the youngest in the family. There is uh, only an older sister who was my student and an older brother who were both married. So uh, it, it, it was a terrible, 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 terrible tragedy. But here I'm sure they'll react. Let the, let the person remarry. Gesundheit, hate, halavai, find happiness. But, you know, people are funny. Here, what they were chayshish was, I can understand psychologically. The father finds out that the daughter-in-law remarried, and efegintanisht. Whatever it is, you can never tell the way people think, uh, oh, my daughter-in-law raped my son's heart out. Uh, she was responsible that he went so far away to look for panasa. Oh, uh, she wasn't worthy of him. You understand? Human beings are funny animals. So they were chayshish, that maybe the man will pop up when he finds out and he'll contradict what the Eidech had said in his name. And they got very frightened and they turned to the great Rabbi Yitzchak inspector and they asked, we're ready not to the woman. The woman is ready to get married. We, we are only worried, maybe, 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 the man will find out and the man will come and the man will pop up and the man will deny what was said in his name. What will happen then? So you see, here's the Sheila of Davashil Abali Olam. Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Khanan wrote tens of thousands of words to be Mati the woman, to be Mati the Psak, 
to reach the conclusion that once he heard it from the father, it's aid me pa, the aid that is good, the aid is that's acceptable, the father can't come back in machish, he's not going to believe afterwards, it was Messiah Lafitumal the first time, it was honest, now we may have a personal vendetta, Rabbi Sulchanan is Matir Lahalacha. But watch what happens. He sends his chiva around to another few Rabbanim for their haskama. Like we said uh, last year, and I explained this whole concept so many different times and so many different instances, Poskim must answer questions. We who are little people, so we have a right to say, I told you when when I got smicha, the joke used to be on the back of the smicha, the right Oregon 7, OR7, 1212. Anyone tell me what Oregon 7, 1212 was? Jack, was Moshe's phone number, exactly. If you look at the Moshe's stationery, you'll see that my memory is still good. You can imagine Oregon 71212. And I would call Rav Moshe. I once said I had a few difficult questions. I was a kid. I couldn't handle it. How dare I handle it? would call Rav Moshe. And it was such a azazism mensch. You can't imagine the sweetness. can't imagine Rav Moshe Feinstein. can't imagine... The, the, the humility, the humbleness. And why you just missed him by an inch. He already was almost, Dr. Belkin desperately wanted him to come to YU. Well, Dr. Belkin, he used to come for Shabbos, stay in, the, in Washington Heights with, with the Tendlers, with his daughter Shifra, and the Tendlers of New Washington Heights at the time, and he would come to the Daven and the Yeshiva, and he would speak at Shalashuris, and Dr. Belkin desperately said to him, I, I can tell you what he said, I can paraphrase, he said, why are you making yourself crazy with MTJ, it's a little yeshiva, you have to worry about raising funds, what do you need it for, come and be a rosh yeshiva by us, you'll say shia twice a week, like your cousin, like the Rav, and you'll have all the time to write the chufat, and you won't have to worry about money. Could you imagine? That's how close. But Reb Moshe made the chishav that if he leaves MTJ, it'll fall apart. Because he was the dominant figure there by far. And after all, he didn't want it to fall apart. So that's how close he came to coming to YU, you should know. But he was such a sweet individual. So, you understand, you called Reb Moshe. And, 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 but a big rub, when a question comes to Reb Moshe, he can't tell you, call, call someone else, call that one. There's no one, who are you going to call? You understand? All he can do is write a shiva and say, look, I'm not sure of myself, this is a new area. No one else has chopped down the wood to go through this forest. And he has a right to say, I'm answering la halacha, but it's not la maisa, unless Tadabs can agree with me. So Rabbi Chochanan writes this unbelievable shiva. And he sends it around. Now watch what he says here. Right at the end of subdivision Sadi. It's unbelievable. Watch what he says. He knows human nature. I told you this in a different context. What am I referring to? Remember I told you there was once a head the mayor Rabbanim that uh, was, was, was a fake out, was a bluff. So why did everyone sign it? Because you look at the first signature, the first two signatures... And once you see that this one signed, that one signed, so everyone adds their name. Now, the truth of the matter is, you don't check it out. You depend upon the first three signatures. Rupzalchanan was upset and worried that when he sends this kuntras around, Rabbanim are going to look at it, see how large it is, and they'll say, they'll glance at it. You understand the way I, I face the way I glance at a newspaper. You 
think I read a newspaper B and I glance at it. All I can tell you is the the baseball I read B and the Yankees are doing miserably. And I tell you, until Tory comes back, there's going to be tragedy. And it's fascinating. Maguire and Sasa are nowhere near leading their res- the, the leagues in home runs. It's amazing the way Galgal Galchoser Biolam. That's the only part of the paper I, I messed up. The rest of the paper, Mehechetese. So, Lahavdil, Reb Zohanan was worried that people will glance at it and say, well, the great Reb Yitzchokhanan wrote hundreds and hundreds of, 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 of paragraphs. Who can go through it all? We'll be Samach on him and add their signatures. And he writes, I mean, this is a classic. He's, I'm translating as I read. He says, Thank God, God has brought me till now to be able to pask in this very difficult question to permit this woman to remarry. My hetter is based upon so many strong points in halacha, la shel Torah bezrat Hashem. But this is a very difficult question. And I don't want to be until you, my dear great rabbi, agree with me, and we find two other rabbanim ga'onim together with me, who will agree? But I want you to know, please read my long quintus permitting this woman from the start to the finish. And please, with an open eye, go through the entire shaklevatai, everything I built and everything I refuted. See whether I'm right. And don't just go through it. He was so close. I mean, these words are unbelievable. Don't just go through it quickly, glancing at it. No, I don't want you to do that. I want you to really go through it and see whether I'm right. And then come his famous words. V'lo yuchbad hazot. Please, don't think this is too hard. You're going to get it. David Blum is going to say, oh, I'm busy, I have to make a Chaburin or a Chaim, I have to take an exam in your Redea. As some of you have, have to take Rabarin's Bechina. I don't have time for it. He says, don't say that. Everyone knows, how weak I am. I have to tell you, you grow older, youth doesn't understand this. You grow older, you're weaker. I mean, I'm... I'm Fairly healthy, Baruch Hashem. I'm not a youngster. I still have energy. I still walk miles and miles every week. But I know my limitations. You have no idea. Last week, I remember when I finished here, I could barely speak. I was sick all week. Mamish, all week. It took me five, six days to start to recover. I had a bug in me, a cold in me. I know my limitations. As much as I watch myself, you're older, the body is different. As everyone knows how weak I am. Now, what he means, who knows? The Jews were always suffering. He was the, he was the rub of Kavna, the Zionist movement. They were bothering him from all ends of the world. You understand what I'm saying? I know, I know the feeling. Sometimes faxes come in for me from Chabad, from this one, from that one. People want sources. And you have to answer. You have to be a mensch. What am I going to do with Nick? Uh, not answer. Chabad, I have an ongoing correspondence with Chabad already. I can write a book from by giving them a good answer the first time, each time. Each, and each time my titles go up. It's amazing. You know, now I'm addressed to Rafa going, you understand? But each time, but you know, one good answer deserves another good answer. They want sources. And Baruch Hashem, I'm able to help them. So, little Aaron Rakefet, you can imagine a beautiful Khan inspector. When you, the face, see, this is the tragedy of life. When you're 30, and you know everything, and you're the Gadol Hadar, no one's knocking at your door, because you're not famous. See, the love. 
later in life when you're weak, when you're weakened, when you're saddened, when you're fatigued, when you've had so much service in life. Well, look at the rub. By the 1970s, they had to protect them, you see. You understand? Everyone's knocking and calling. And, and he himself said, sometimes he says he, he gets so many letters, he just doesn't even look at them. He couldn't look at them. He, 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 he says, sometimes they doesn't answer his door. He said, students are bothering me with, with questions that they shouldn't have been coming to me with. You know, that's terror, what to do this, what to do that. Some says it so beautifully, he says, and I'm so bothered. See, it'd be interesting to know, I don't have here the date when he wrote the Chiva. But you would have to check out the local newspapers and find out what was going on in Russia. Maybe the Tsarist government was falling, the revolution, Jews were being arrested, the Zionist movement, Zionist congresses. And he says, and nevertheless, with all this difficulty, look how hard I worked to put this country together. And help this poor woman. And like they say, and again he's quoting what we quoted a year ago, the Bacha Chadashad, And he says, if I plead with you, go through it. And only after you go through it, if you agree with me, then we see Rabbanim will paskan lahalacha, and I permit them to permit this woman to remarry. And I think that that shiva says it all. Okay. Now we come in meinanli nambal tovinyan, and we're going to begin a topic now that I begin today. And Bezrat Hashem, God should keep us in health. I'll finish up uh, next August uh, in, in, into September when the, the new Kolel comes in. Of all the wars we fought in Israel, no war found us in a worse position than the Yom Kippur War. I can tell you about the Yom Kippur War that we were davening in the old BMT on Rehov Ababanel. And we had just uh, finished Nusaf. We weren't ready for Minchar, obviously. And I can tell you, I didn't go to the Kotel in Yom Kippur night. Early, other years I'd gone to the Kotel, and I was having problems with fasting already. I didn't know why. It turned out that my problems with fasting were, they didn't discover it. I don't know if you're aware, I don't want to go into great detail now, but Rabbi Norman Lamb fainted in the Jewish center in uh, 1976 on Yom Kippur. Fainted on Yom Kippur. David, a doctor in the shul, was curious. Why did Rabbi Lamb faint on Yom Kippur? Are you aware of this story? No one knows the story. That doctor did research. That research saved thousands of Jews on Yom Kippur. And it turned out something that the halacha never knew before, caffeine withdrawal. In other words, we become addicted to coffee. You know, everyone needs that morning cup of coffee, uh, that cup of cola. And you don't realize that when Yom Kippur comes, suddenly you don't have that caffeine. And that's why Rabbi Lamb fainted. Now that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in uh, June of 1977. And it changed a great deal of the world. Uh, I can tell you something interesting, as Rabbanim, you should know this. 
they came out with caffeine suppositories. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? That people who have caffeine addiction, on Yom Kippur, you take a caffeine suppository. Basically, caffeine suppositories we use, people who have those permanent headaches. What do they call it? Uh, Migraine headaches, exactly. People who have migraines use something with a lot of caffeine in it. But they came out specifically. In Israel, they definitely have something better than America. It's mamish pure caffeine. So, 78, when I spent Shabbos in Boston with the Rav, if you want to know the gauntlet of the Rav, I was speaking with Rebbe about many problems. And I, as I told you, when I was a kid and I studied with the Rav, I was overwhelmed by him. I don't want to tell you in 78, I was, of course, overwhelmed. But at least I knew enough that I could speak with him as a Talmud Chacham. You understand? I don't want to say man to man. God forbid, don't misunderstand me. But as a little peanut of a Talmud Chacham talking to the Gadol Hadar. So we spoke for hours and Rebbe, whatever the reasons were, I guess it was a breath of fresh air because it took him back to his youth and it took him back on why he was normal. I'll talk about this tomorrow. It took him away from his students from that time that he loved their learning but couldn't stand their hashkafa. And he was so warm and generous and gracious to me and pleaded with me to come to Boston for a chag to be with him. But anyway, so one I asked him in this, one of the questions I asked him was Rebbe, the caffeine suppository with Jim Kippur. And the Rebbe said to me, not only did he say, I want you to know, not only is it muta, but you should publicize in my name that it's muta lachatrila. For people who have caffeine withdrawal, and his, you see the feeling to help a Jew, because I, I cannot tell you what it means. I used to go through fast days on Tisha B'Av. I remember fainting and throwing up, and Yom Kippur became a nightmare. And, and I didn't know why. In 73, I didn't know why yet. So because I had problems already fasting on Yom Kippur, I didn't go to the Kotel, Kol Nidre night. It was the first time in my life I didn't go Kol Nidre night to the Kotel, although I would be davening every Friday night, every Yom Kippur night at the Kotel until then. I didn't go because I didn't want to overexert myself when I'm fasting. I thought the headaches came from the fasting, I, uh, from the exertion. I didn't know yet. You understand, it's 1973. This research first appears in 1977. I brought a copy of the journal back to Yerushalayim, gave it to my doctor, and there was a meeting of all the Anglo-Saxon doctors, and my doctor read the highlights of the article. He says, you don't know the schut you have what I was able to do for people for Yom Kippur. And today, in all the from neighbors, you can go into any drugstore and they have caffeine suppositories for Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. So, um, had I gone to the Kolto, Kol Nidre night, I would have known something was happening. Because people tell me at the Kotel they were walking up and down and calling up people for the army. They were walking up and down Yeshiva Rakotel. But I didn't know anything. One strange thing, two strange things remain in my mind. As I'm walking to shul on that Yom Kippur morning, on Rehov uh, Ha'ari, turning into Aza, a car, very strange. I see a woman dressed like it's Yom Kippur, looks like a Yiddish mensch, and I see she's driving on Yom Kippur. That registered in my mind. I later learned that that woman was the head nurse. I, learned, learned, I later learned who that woman was. She was the head nurse at Shari Tzedek. Then, I remember during Musaf, we heard 
planes overhead. And that was strange. But we still didn't know anything. And right after Musaf, the boys gathered around me and started, you know, being, I don't have to tell you, and being there was a very beloved Rebbe and teacher. I still have a, an amazing relationship with my students out of the 60s into the 70s, etc. The boys gathered around me and I can tell you like it happened a minute ago. At that time, the Rav's viewpoint and territorial compromise was being discussed here. It became known. And the Mechas Rav people were very opposed. Rabbi Lichtenstein had expressed the Rav's viewpoint. And the boys asked me about it. And I was giving a whole discourse on the Ramban and Pikuach Nefesh and, and Reb Chaim's viewpoint, Reb Chaim Briska, and the Rav, where the Rav is coming from, and the Merkasa Rav people, and, and, and the Ramban, and, and the whole mitzvah, and, and the Machlaikas, Maimonides, Nachman, yeah, I don't have to tell you, you've probably heard only Shurim on it. And while I'm talking about the Sugya, while I'm talking, an English boy living across the street comes in to the Yeshiva, the base Megrish, was a little building, I can show it to you, the building still exists in Rehova Babanel, and he's screaming and shouting, turn on your radios, there's war, there's war, he was hysterical. First of all, that's the worst mistake you can make, you should know what a time of tragedy, the time of stress, the worst mistake you can make is to become hysterical. It, it, that's what the Torah talks about, Mihaish, Varach Vavav, leave the army. Because, when you start screaming and shouting, tragedy, war, you frighten everyone. And we're going to be frightened enough anyway. That's unnecessary. Keep your wits with you. One minute later, a truck comes down the street with a loudspeaker telling everyone to turn on their radios. And of course, we turned on the radio. Madrichim, some of our Madrichim left that very day. One of the Madrichim from BMT, his picture is up in the hallway upstairs, of course, never came back. Another Madrich, that, that of course is uh, Birnbaum. Uh, another Madrich, who had been on Madrich a year earlier, also never came back. Stern, I later taught his widow at the Michlala. And as you know, the Yom Kippur War began with the worst possible circumstances for Israel. We were taken totally by surprise. Why we were taken by surprise? Why didn't Golda react? Why did Kissinger tie our hands? The debate will go on. I can tell you very simply, Kissinger killed thousands of Jews. He tied the hands of Golda. Kissinger's feelings were that Israel has to get beaten. The Arabs have to raise pride. It's Arab mentality. It's Eastern mentality. And then the Arabs will be ready to make peace. And that's the way he viewed it. And by the way, if you will ask Kissinger today, he will tell you I was absolutely right. Uh, because of the Yom Kippur War, uh, we have the Egyptian Peace Treaty. Because of the Egyptian Peace Treaty, we have the Palestinian Peace Treaty. Because of the Palestinian, we have the Jordanian Peace Treaty. Of course, in 50 years, there will be nothing left of Israel, in my opinion, as this continues, but I may be wrong. Tomorrow's election may prove me wrong or may prove me right in the four years to come. Who knows? But I'm not here to tell you my own feelings. This is what Kissinger would say. And I 
3,000 Jewish boys got killed, among them so many people that I knew, who I was living here already a while in 73, among them so many people I was close to, so 3,000 people got killed, so many thousands got wounded, so Kissinger will say, as a good American, it, in the long run it was worth it, because it spared so many other lives, this is what politic is all about, war and peace is all about, and he very cold-bloodedly will tell you, I did the right thing. How good the mayor and everyone else listened to him and allowed our boys to be butchered is beyond beyond anyone's conception. But this can be when there's no Yerit Shemayim and you let Kissinger lead you and, and, and the canal and how they were convinced the Barlev line and, and what the Barlev line within minutes the Egyptians broke through the Barlev line. Now, it was pandemonium. Since no one expected a war, no one was ready for it. The troops that were at the front were butchered. There was no time to make records who was where. You have to understand, I fought in two wars. The Yom Kippur War afterwards, I was a volunteer, I taught, but I went in after the initial fighting. The Lebanese war I was in from the start. In Lebanon, the minute you went over the border, your name was recorded, everything was organized, your, your identification number, what vehicle you're in, where you're going to, everything was recorded because that war began with our troops and forces being prepared. The logistics were ready. The Yom Kippur War took us helter-skelter. Now you know, until today, no one can understand why the Egyptians didn't reach Beersheba and why the Syrians didn't reach Tiberias because the amount of troops between where the Egyptians broke through to Beersheba were negligible. But you know what the story was? The Egyptians thought there was a trap. They couldn't believe that we were so ill-prepared. So they thought it was a trap. So instead of racing the first day when we didn't have forces, they waited. They held back. And that saved us. In the Syrian heights... Never did so few save so many. The Hezda boys, what went into action, what went on there, the, the valiant fighting is indescribable. Literally, they gave their lives to save the state. Then, of course, we started calling up the reserves. It was helter-skelter. People went into battle unprepared, unaccounted for, unmarked. What they did with the missiles, 20% of the Air Force was decimated. How many bodies, how many bodies were recovered? It was just an unbelievable tragedy. Now, of course, we counterattacked and we scored unbelievable victories. And Eric Sharon, of course, crossed over into Egypt, into Africa. I have students who went with him, crossed over with him. Uh, I have pictures, the students gave me pictures. They were dancing on the bridge across the Suez Canal. From, from the Middle East into Africa. And of course, we wound up scoring an unbelievable victory. But we uh, simply the fighting on the Ramatagolan was so bitter, the boys literally held off Syria with miracles. We paid with many lives. But the bravery of this is Kalani, who today did their Hashlishit, will be voted out of office tomorrow. But Kalani was a great hero on, on, the, on the Golan Heights. The Hezda boys who were called up immediately went into the Golden Heights and mass. They were wiped out, but they saved the country. Now, 
I cannot tell you when the fighting finally ended and while the fighting was going on Israel does not announce casualties for logistical reasons because it can totally destroy the population when you have to bury 3,000 soldiers so what they did I, I don't want to go into a lot of detail but it's very fascinating and there are sources for this they set up temporary battle temporary burial sites near the battlefields and thousands of boys were buried in the Golan Heights and in Sinai Desert that solved the problem of the population having endless funerals the tragedy of this was that a year later when the reburials took place the pain was so great it was like losing your son your husband your brother your student your madrich twice once when you found out he was dead after the war and then a year later I remember the reburials they were they they were awesome they were they were terrible they were heartrending not only that when they finally were able to count heads something like 800 men were unaccounted for 800 listen to the figure I'm telling you and I can remember endless students at Michlala postgraduate girls juniors seniors postgraduate they were agunat living agunat and I remember demonstrations at the Knesset I remember my own female students we all went to participate to give them chizah putting pressure not on the Israeli government but that on America I have to check with Egypt Kissinger and this was a major issue and then little by little the clouds started to clear and we had more information more burials more bodies were identified nevertheless the Aguna problems were endless bodies never came back until today there are bodies that are missing particularly planes that were shot down over Egypt we, after the Egyptian peace treaty we started to search for them we did search we couldn't search sometimes we found bodies sometimes they cooperated sometimes they didn't I don't have to tell you war is not pleasant and modern warfare is filled with tragedy in days of yore if you died in battle at least the body got a reverent burial and the enemy would stop fighting they would take out a day to allow burial they respected it in contemporary warfare there's no way missiles planes where what frogmen ships submarines the Dakar to use an example that I remember like yesterday until today who would ever dream I remember when they announced that Dakar was missing in 1968 who would ever dream that in 1999 we still don't have a clue what happened to the Dakar it's 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 mind-boggling submarine Israel submarine that, that we bought from London left base and it never reached Israel it's unbelievable unbelievable until today we still don't know what happened to the Dakar there's a book try to be published they censored it here who knows what the truth is there are a lot of secrets out there now finally there remained the hardcore of hundreds of Haguna that simply at that time the bodies were not recovered Tzvah Haganali Israel set up a very interesting base then they asked Rabbi Ovadja Yosef who was then the Svadik chief rabbi to sit at the head of the Beitin sitting with him was the chief 
rabbi of the Israeli armed forces at that time, Harav Mordechai Piron, who today is in what's he in, this, in Switzerland, I believe, sad story there. He was a very uh, talented person, not a great London, but he had existed, Rabbi Gurin, for many years. And after he left the army, he couldn't find himself. He winds up the head of Mizrahi, and he winds in, in Switzerland, and he gives him there, and they don't accept this. It's a sad story with him. I don't want to comment. He should have come back to Israel. They should have found a place for him. The Mizrahi woman is very capable, speaks many languages, very, very sophisticated. And of course, his assistant, who was then the assistant chief rabbi, was then a brigadier general, Tataluf Gatnavon. Gatnavon today is the oldest general in the Israeli army. I think in terms of service, there is no general that has served longer in the Israeli army. Rav Gatnavon happens to be my personal friend for reasons I think I told you two years ago. And until today, we, re- we, we retain a good relation, a wonderful relationship. But I can tell you the reason he still remains Tata Luf, uh, Aluf rather, in his 80s is for one simple reason. Everyone is afraid of what will happen the day they have to pick a successor to him. World War Three will break out in the army. The Shas people versus the Rav Kook people, the Israeli army will shake. Kozman that got Navon is there, there's peace there. It's a, it's a common, those of you who know what I'm saying, know that I've hit the nail on the head. Now, these three people sat in the Beitin, of course, Rabbi Vadi Yosef was the heart of the Beitin, and they dealt with every single Aguna question from the Yom Kippur War. What is amazing, not one Aguna remains from the Yom Kippur War. They were able to be matir every last Aguna. Hundreds. Many years later, years later, bodies came back, but there never was one mistake. Not one Aguna remains. I still remember that demonstration. I still remember the tears. I still remember the placards. I still remember my own students living Aguna. What a terrible sight to see. Not one Aguna remains from the Kippur Not one. Yes, David. I, I said, and Rabbi Vaj Yosef, and then Rabbi Mordechai Piron, who was the general, the chief chaplain, General Aluf got uh, Mordechai Piron. His assistant was Tataluf uh, Gadnavon. And when I came into the army, that was exactly the way it was. Piron was general, Gadnavon was the, was the uh, brigadier general. But when I came in already, Gadnavon was running the whole show. Within a year, uh, Mordechai Piron goes out. And in the civilian life, he f- doesn't find his role here. He winds up in, what, where is he, in Zurich? I don't even, he's in, he's in Switzerland. And, and he remains there until today. You'll see his hashgacha on Mars bars. They import candy from there. There's always a machloket. Can you depend upon the hashgacha? Can't you depend upon the hashgacha? It's sad. And Gad Navon, of course, has gone on to, rem- to remain the longest active serving general in the Israeli army. He's now been a full general with a, f- with, with a very important command position for well over 20 years. It's unheard of, unheard of in the army. Generally speaking, a general remains four years, eight years. That's it. You move to there, to there, and then you move out. You always have to make room for fresh ideas, for fresh people. Turnover. And Gat Navon remains, and that's the reason, is the reason I gave you, that if, with the minute he leaves, World War III breaks out, because when he went in, the Mizrahi element controlled the army. Although, I have to tell you, the army chaplaincy is multifaceted. 
Everyone is there. Hebron boys, Panovich boys, Merkaz boys, Polat Joseph boys, uh, YU people. The chaplaincy is very multifaceted. But nevertheless, it was controlled by the Mizrahi element. Today, Shas is a major rival <coughs> for the Mizrahi element. And who knows? After tomorrow, it can be one of the major political parties in the country, despite everything that's happened. Now, there was Zeichet to be Matir every last Aguna. Rabbi Yosef wrote an amazing contrast, an unbelievably long shiva. It appears in Yabia Omet, that's Ravavadja's, Ravavadja's written so many from, it's unbelievable. His main responsa are in Yabia Omer. Those are the major ones where you see Kol Gadluto, all his knowledge, all his pekiot. The smaller ones are in, um, uh, not Yabia Omer, but Yechavadat. Yechavadat, those are the smaller ones. Uh, you know how your Chavadat began? I don't. I, I, the radio. When, when I were in the seventies, Ravovadja would have a radio program. I believe it was every Friday. You could pick up Ravovadja like one o'clock, answering questions. And I recorded them. I have recordings that I recorded in the early seventies when Ravovadja wasn't even known. You have no idea the man was unknown. I, I discovered him because I taught his daughter through his daughter. I got to know him, Rifka, Rifka Yosef, Rifka. I don't know what her name. I, seen her married name in the papers. Rivka was my student, Michala. And she brought, she told her father what I was teaching. He sent me a country. So, well, I mean, you have no idea what a wonderful human being, what a down-to-earth person Ravovadja is. So Ravovadja was unknown. And then he would appear on the radio. And I would hear him answering questions. The knowledge, it was unbelievable. And I have recordings I still have that I made of Ravovadja in the early 70s. Because to me, coming, you know, I was just adjusting to Israel, then I was part of the Israeli scene. It was overwhelming because in America you had nothing like this. So that Yechavadat was originally published from the, re- from the radio questions he got and the way he answered. And those answers were much briefer than the Abiyaroma, where he has many volumes, but there he has endless contrasim. Now, in Chelek Vav, that's where he deals with the uh, Yom Kippur War. And I want to begin, I have uh, a, a good deal of the countries in front of me. This is Shimon Gimel. And I don't think uh, we've ever had uh, questions like this before in the response literature. And he writes a beautiful introduction because of the Yom Kippur War, he writes that the military rabbin had turned to him, he mentions Rav Mordechai Piron, he mentions Rav Gatnavon, and uh, he gives them all their titles, and he says they turned to him and asked him to sit on a baton, to be matir, these almanatsi, because you've got to remember, soldiers are generally young, and you're dealing here with men missing in action in their 20s and their 30s, they're living here, some men are married at 19, missing in action, and, and they're living, and they're leaving young Almanet. I mean, think what we're talking about here. And he writes beautifully, and even though I know how small I am, this is a beautiful rabbinic introduction, 
How can I deal b'dinei erva ha-chamura? These are the most difficult halachat and befrat eshetish. And I know how great the achrayat is on a posseik, but nevertheless, I also know what the Bacha Chadashat says, and he quotes it absolutely correctly. He knows everything perfectly. Everyone says, the Bach, I showed you a year ago, it's not the Bach. The Bach doesn't say that he's quoting, the Bach is quoting Reb Menachem Stiglitz. One of his contemporaries says it. But the Bach quotes him. Everyone says the Bach. It's not the Bach. The Bach happens to quote Reb Menachem Stiglitz. But he says it's the Bach quoting and what a mitzvah is to be matir and aguna, and if this is the case, I had to give up my time, I had to leave, he writes, and he writes, you know, like every Talmud Chacham, we Jews are always tied down by our Sidre Limud. Uh, what can I tell you? This is part of our life. We're always learning. We're always tied down. We always have responsibility. We always have goals to accomplish. And and I know what it means. I know what he's saying. I had to leave over my regular learning and I had to devote myself. Now do you fellas know the meaning That's Whenever you have a Maisa Beitin What a Maasa Beitin means That three Dayanim or three Rabbanim Sit as one In other words it's not three individuals We're in total agreement And that's the expression we use that the three of us sat together like one, and after we went through every case, and were very careful, and went through all the sources, we were able to give a psaktin, we were able to permit all these women to remarry. Now, the first question he deals with, and this is unbelievably fascinating, the disc. Everyone knows the day you enter the army, they give you a disc with an ID number. It breaks in half. You know what I'm talking about? You're supposed to wear the disc around your neck. What do they call it in English? Is it called a disc or an ID, a dog tag? Dog tag. In Hebrew, they call it a disc. Discus. The idea behind it is very simple. It has your name. It has your mispa'ishi number. Everyone entering the army gets a number. It's different than your tudatsehut number, obviously. And the concept of breaking in half is very simple. What it means is, when a body is found on the battlefield, the military people in charge, whether it's the Hefer Kaddisha or the soldiers, they break the disc, they put that which one half in the mouth of the deceased, and that way it's in your mouth, you're not going to swallow it, remains there, and the other half they take, that's proof that this body, this person was killed on the battlefield. And that's exactly what the disc is, what the dog tag is. That's exactly its purpose. And I imagine every civilized army in the world uses this concept. Now, first of all, with the Yom Kippur War, he starts describing uh, 
how terrible the war began, how we were caught off guard, that the method of fighting, you got to remember, it's what I've told you all along, when you fought bayonet to bayonet, you could identify a body. In, in, in the war today with missiles and anti-tank missiles and, and, and what goes on, you can't even identify a body. And he says, it's impossible to see a face anymore. person was in a tank that caught fire. There's no face. There's no nose. There's no way you're going to identify, even within Gimel Yomim, even within 72 hours, nothing remains of the visage. And, and he says, many times, the only identification is the dog tag. Now, he raises a very interesting problem. Originally, how do we speak of identification in Chazal? How do we speak of identification? We speak in terms, how do people refer to each other? Right or wrong? We had no family names. When we write a Ketuva, how do we write a Ketuva in America? You write a Ketuva, the father, the son's name. How do you write a get? You write a get. The, the name of the, the husband, the father's name. The name of the woman, her father's name. We never used family names. Family names are a recent invention. Can you depend upon it? What's written on the dog tag? The dog tag, Aharon Rakafet. Miss Paishit. They don't write the name of your father. And you see, here you get involved with a very interesting question. Why did they write the name of your father? To limit. How many people are Chaim Yaakov Ben Zalman Schnur? All right, it limits. Could be a family name. Limits a lot less. Aaron is a very popular first name. Uh, Rothkov. If you start picking up Rothkovs, you're going to find... Plenty of Rothkovs. You have no idea how many calls I've gotten from people who want to know whether we're related. And it's interesting. Uh, I've, uh, I, I've yet to come up with anyone because my family came to America a hundred years ago. My four brothers came to America. And from those four brothers, we know what survives yet. But a number of Rothkovs came in after World War I and in the 1930s. We're not related. But I've gotten calls from those, those other families, the Balai Chiva, who have been, there's one who now bought a, an apartment in the old city, I believe he's a medical doctor. He called me, he knows everything I've ever published, and he said he's proud that we have the same last name, you know, I, I, beautiful. But uh, there are plenty of Rothkopfs around. Now, Rakefet, I admit, is unique. Aaron Rakefet is, is unique. As, as far as Rakefet is the last name, there's no other Rakefet in the state of Israel with a last name. There are girls around Rakefet Aharon. Rakefet is the first name for girls. Svadim use their family names. They're interesting, like Ovadji Yosef. So he has a son, Yosef Yosef. You understand? Yosef, they use... You have, I, you have, I know people, Mayor Mayor, uh, Aaron Aaron, they have last names. Evidently was named after some father, and that's the name that remained in the family. But Rakefet is a girl's first name, and one time the police called me, Erev Yom Kippur, I'll never forget. They were looking for Rakefet Aaron, there had been some car accident in Tel Aviv. And, I, and it dawned upon me, I told this policeman, I ever tell you a story from Tel Aviv, I told the policeman, 
I said, you must be looking for Rakefet Aaron. Try, and he went back to, he called me back a few months later. He blessed me so I must have saved him. endless work. I said, you must be looking for a girl. I haven't driven in Tel Aviv, I told him, since 1970. And this was like in the 80s. And sure enough, but you see, this is the entire analysis. Now, what limits our identity more and more and more? So, you should know that the Rav used to be very makped. That in the Ktuva and in a get, he would write both the traditional way with the family name. Because he felt that in modern times, Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, if, if your family name was for the sake of argument Lichtenstein, so Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, the Mishpachat Lichtenstein, was a more accurate and a more exact form of identification. Because it's much more limiting, you see. What's the whole idea of names? The whole idea of names is to limit it that it's you, not someone else. Allah kama if you add the family name, in modern times, it becomes a lot more limiting. And, and this is what, what uh, uh, Rabbi Vajra says, that if you find the dog tag that says Yaakov Ezer, and that may be a name, it has to, I have a book of all those that died in the Yom Kippur War, it has to be checked, that may be a real name. And he says, if you find the dog tag that says Yaakov Ezer, and you know that the only Yaakov Asa, there was only one Yaakov Asa missing in battle, then that dog tag is absolutely reliable. See? Family name. Allah had come come, I'll add something else. That uh, uh, if you have a Miss Parishi, and you see Yaakov Asa missing in battle with that Miss Parishi, for sure. There's only one, and and it is an absolutely valid, positive means of identification. Now, he then goes into the Ramah. You can see all the sources. See, very interesting. The Ramah paskins not to write family names in a get. From that psaac, what would you conclude? That perhaps family names are not a good form of identification. But then, if you look into the no say kalim that come after the Ramah, you'll find that the reason they don't want to write family names, can anyone think what the reason is? Anyone ever study Hilchit Kitten? Exactly. The more names you write and get, the more chance of a mistake. The more chance of a mistake, the more chance you can possibly to get. The less things you write, the healthier. To write a family name when not required would create a much greater fear of a mistake. And particularly family names, because family names generally, see when you write a name like Gershon, you write a name like Menachem, you write a name like David, like Aaron, like Yaakov, you don't have a problem. Our problem begins when you write a family name, Rothkov. You know how many variations there are to writing Rothkov? You know how I grew up writing it? Reish Aleph. At the end, another Aleph. The Yiddish way. Then I wrote it the Hebrew way. The correct way would be with a Vav Vav. Then I didn't like the fact it was Vav Vav at the end. Kof, a monkey. That's all I need. Students, you know, pick up on it. The Rebbe's a monkey. 
For years I wrote it with a, a, a kufay. Now I went back to the real way. I, bl- I think I went back. I have to check my stationery. But the, the correct way would be kufafay. But you get involved in such a levenstein. Levenstein. It's a tremendous... How do you write it? How do you write it? Blum. Bloom. Bleem. You get involved. Ben Naim is not a problem. But uh, Blum is a problem. Feed is not a problem. Finer. Less of a problem. Bunstein, perhaps less of a problem. But the Achronim were very chayshish. And I have to tell you, with modern kitten, we have... The problems are endless, because you see, it's not just the family name. We have different problems. We have problems today that we have so many nicknames. We who live in a double culture, how many different names do we go by? How many names do we answer? I answer to so many names, it's unbelievable. People, I answer to Arnie. I answer to Aaron. I answer to Aaron. I answer to Bruce. Um, it's unbelievable. Nevertheless, I told you, my wife, that name Quran, 61, we had a neighbor, Spruce, was my first driver. I was having tremendous aggravation that year. I was getting killed. That was Balakinwood. And uh, I guess to lighten the tension, she started calling me Bruce, Bruce, and it caught on. The name remains to me until today. Some of my students know when I'm with my wife, they'll hear the word Bruce, they know it's me. I, I answered there's so many different names. Now when you write a get and you have, and you know how much literature there is, the mitkoye, the machuna. You understand what I'm talking about? And remember, what about the name I was given? Arnold, Arnold Edward. It's my given name. My parents stayed awake many nights. You know, when your firstborn child comes, I'm a firstborn, I'm also a Bukhar. You think only Matthew has a Bukhar? I'm also a Bukhar. You understand? And, and, th- and this is such a problem today. You have no idea. Writing of Gittin is an art unto itself. But if I'm not mistaken, and this has to be checked out, the Rav evidently held that, you see, during the Ramah's time, a last name was a luxury. Some people had it, some people didn't have it, some people used it, some people just took it because the going forced them. Nowadays, a last name is a powerful form of identity. It's literally the way we're identified. The last name, you know what, you're, some of you have wives that, that, that refuse to take your last names. I hope, I don't know if it's any of you, but uh, I know the Reb David told me in the Kolel some of the problems that, he, that he's come up against this year. I can understand why some guys don't like to look at me. I can understand it very well. I represent to them my Rav Shachter and, and Rav Lanspiegel combined into one. The Avia Votatuma. I always was considered a liberal, broad-minded, but all right, I have certain viewpoints. What can I do? I, I live Torah. I was raised in Torah and I'm concerned that there should be Torah 100 years from now, alive and kicking. So I, had, I have certain viewpoints. I can't help it. I'm, not, I'm very upset. You have no idea how much it upsets me when women refuse to use their husband's names because it's against You understand what I'm saying? If anyone's upset, we have to march with pickets. Who gave women the right to determine the, 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 the most important thing in life? The Judaism of the child. It's a terrible thing. Women determine it all. But that's the Allah I have to battle it. Mother's Jewish, the kid is Jewish. Doesn't matter who the father is. It's an amazing halacha. And, and they, but the women want everything. It's a man's an amazing thing. You have, you have the most important thing. 
The Veit Havatam has to do with, with Yerusha, with, with the most meaningless matters of life. Who owns the car? Who owns the television? It has to be identity, families, voting rights, whatever it is. Rabbani Shalom Nachla. So that goes through the husband. Rabbani Shalom, if you have to use your husband, so use both names, hyphenated, Bidiyavid, but I'll tell you with the hyphenation, you wind up, she has yet her mother's name and her father's name, then she carries her husband's name, then her daughter, Rabbani Shalom. We're going to walk around with 12 different names. I had a Rebbe like that, Rav Shmuel Ezevok, when he recovered, he was operating on, if you look at his later volumes, he has like eight names, Chizkiyonu, Chizkizoyu, Yechayehu, Yishayoku, Yechayehu, whatever it was, they kept on adding names and names and names, and Baruch Hashem, he pulled out of it. But in his, you know, when you add on so many names, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put into a volume eight different first names. And people look at it, they don't know what it's talking about. You have to understand why his later volumes have so many names. But, uh, but all right, today a family name is, is a, I, I believe this is what the Rav held. And that's why the Rav was not, but I know in Ketuvah, I know in my Ketuvah, the last name is very important. Traditional, the father, the son, the girl, the father, and the last names. All right, today people put into Ketuvah's, uh, the mother's name. I, I was at a wedding. Uh, whose wedding was I, where I was I at recently? I knew that uh, he, that she she was a big feminist. I forget. But anyway, I was at this wedding, and I, I, I saw the only thing that was different was that the mother's name was mentioned in the Ketuvah. All right, I said, that's the, that's the only change. But but this this is the Rav Shita. And Rabbi Vajra reaches the exact same conclusion. He says that nowadays, what's the whole purpose, the father, the son, to limit it? He says, Allah had come of a comma. When you have a last name, it's very limiting. And then he goes into the Mispai Ishi. See, Rabbi Vajra knows what the Yami is about. He goes into the Mispai Ishi. And, and he says, Ein Lacha Simen Muvak. There's nothing, there's no greater simon mufak than this. A discus, a dog tag, nothing compares to it as a simon mufak. Then he gets involved with another problem, the obvious problem. And this is Chayshin and Lishayla. And he quotes all the sources. Again, you'll see all the sources here. Why do we prefer the witnessing of the body, of the nose, of the visage. And of course, because everything else in life you can lend, someone else can borrow. When it comes to a discus, who would borrow it? It makes absolutely no sense to borrow something, and he quotes the Beit Joseph, it has to have a practical usage for someone else. I can understand I lend my shirt to someone. I lend my kippah. I once had in the BMT, it was a new class, and I'm trying to learn the names, and I see this kid, whatever, I see him as Yamulka, uh, Avraham. So I call Avraham, the kid looks at me, he says, Rebbe, my name's not Avraham, I borrowed the kippah. I mean, it was unbelievable. Borrowed it the next time. Borrow from someone with your name. Don't borrow from an Avraham. But he borrowed a kippah. All right, I can understand you borrow a kippah. So it happens, you know, people... It lose kippah. It's an amazing thing. And many times, I've had people oh, kippah is blown away. Person walks into shul. Do you have a kippah to lend me? My kippah was once blown away. That's why I rarely go to the kotel without a hat. I don't know if you ever seen me Friday night. I have I have my winter hats, my summer hats, but I always wear a hat. Why? Because sometimes it's very windy at the kotel. Very windy coming out of Shayafo. 
And I see my grandsons are holding their kippah, they keep put a blonde, I don't want to start chasing my kippah. I wear a, a cap over my head, over my eyes, Baruch Hashem, the kippah stays in place. But you see, to borrow even a tie, you borrow a tie, in America, sometimes have to borrow a tie, and I cook in Viam Nench, you borrow a watch, all that, you borrow a pen, you borrow a all that I can understand. You borrow even a, a visa card. Uh, I can understand. I told you, more, a guy got stuck. Or lend me your card. I got to pay for something. I'll pay. Whatever it is. Sure, I'll sign your name. I'll take it. Big deal. All right. Fine. Good. A discus. It has no value for anyone else. And he says, and 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 Rabbi Vajir says that such a discus, such a concept, every. One in the world, all the Rishonim who are Chashinim l'Sheila, here no Chashinim l'Sheila. And Ravavaja says so beautifully. He says, "Only an idiot." I mean, imagine a guy is going to lend his dog pig. Ravavaja says to someone else, "So if that guy gets killed, they should think he's killed." What guy would do that? Has to be an idiot. And and idiots like that don't exist. Gershon. Not in the army. Yeah, they're stylish, of course. Girls walk around. Their boyfriends gave them a dog tag. But when you go into battle, you're not wearing a dog tag because it's stylish. Believe me. You're right. No, he's saying it's right. Lo Alenu, if a girl uh, got blown up in in in, in place and, and, and well, let's not even give any look. With the burying her at this moment, they're burying a student. Well, let me not even give you any. But all right. So you find the girl uh, expired. So you see around her neck a dog tag. I mean, of course you know it's her boyfriend. You're not even going to have a hobby, I mean, that she's a paratrooper in the army. I mean, uh, you understand? So you're right, it's stylish, but that we're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are in the army who are going into battle, lower lane. And he says, he says, an, an idiot, you know, he gives the example. Imagine you'll come up with a hechatimtza that a person is going to lend his dog tag, I'm going to fake out the world. This guy is going to get killed. Let them think that. I mean, no one can think like that. I mean, you understand. Halacha has to work in a normal framework. This already, even on a battlefield, even a devious mind, let me put it this way, on a, there are no atheists in foxholes. On a battlefield, no one can be that stupid. You don't play games. So he says, even those that are chayish, that you that you lend your wallet, that you lend uh, uh, your, your ring, that you lend... Any other uh, uh, type of object, but when it comes to a discus, no one in the world is going to lend it out. So he paskins, it's absolutely 100% the finest identity, it's a simon mufak. So see, here you have something, I don't believe this was ever discussed in halacha before. This is mamish identifying a body which is not identifiable any other way, at least at this point in time. The face is gone, the nose is gone, the visage is gone, the body was blown away. All you have is this dog tag that survived the heat, survived the flames. It remains in shape. It was very, very hard steel. All you have, and on that basis, you can be matir 100% a simon mufak, the woman can remarry. And it's just amazing. Let me go just one step further and we'll end off the year. Then he discusses something else. 
What about if there wasn't a dark tech? And lower lane, you know, you go, this, this was the Yom Kippur War. Who was prepared? Who had time? You know, in an organized war, you can check every chayal, where's your dog tech? But, but Vibanishan, I told you, the Yom Kippur War was helter skelter. By the way, I can tell you something you don't realize. It was a miracle that the Egyptians and Syrians attacked on Yom Kippur. You know the story. You know what I'm saying? Had they attacked on Rosh Hashanah, we would have been wiped out. Very simply, why? The only time of the year that the highways are empty are uh, Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah, half the Jews or a third of the country is davening and two-thirds is at the beach. After this election, we're going to have uh, how eleven knit together is beyond my consideration. The only, only thing is, unfortunately, unfortunately, we had a prophet among us. We don't know how to honor him. Aaron Rakefet pleaded with people years. I said, the Russian Jews, you have to be makar of them. You have to build institutions. How much effort I put into Shvatami. Jack will testify time and again. I said, the spiritual future of the state of Israel dispends, depends upon the spiritual absorption of the Russian immigrant. And this election, I want to tell you, uh, I, I, I don't know whether I'll talk to Edelstein and Sharinsky again. I'm an honest guy. I can't help myself. I'm not a Kanai, but I'm honest. They turned it into hatred of the Svadi, of Shas, of the religious Jew. They turned for, for political votes. They turned it all around, and God knows how I'll ever get the genie back in the bottle. If you saw the papers Friday, Jack, this point was made by a lot of people that the hatred this this election engendered, it's 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 unbelievable. So, you understand the dog tag. If you have time, you can think, you can do, you can act. But here, it happened. The Yom Kippur War, no time to think, to act. So, so many people didn't have dog tags. What about what you found in their pockets? Here you find the soldier, and you find in his pocket an identity card. When you go into battle, I don't have it anymore. I had to give it back the day I left the army. There's a little card you carry in your pocket. It's all you're supposed to carry. Your name, your identity number, and your health profile. It's an international concept that has Sifim. For the sake of argument, I have high blood pressure today. I take a certain medicine. Uh, with the medicine, I do not have high blood pressure. My doctor said, uh, I love my doctor. Karen said uh, the other day, it's music to my ears. I'm now 120 over 80 for months already. But I have to take uh, a, a two pills, one in the, a two light dosages, one in the morning, one at night. And after years of experimentation, we have it. So uh, you have to have sifim, that's international. A certain number, that's all you have on that card. Let's say they find that card. Let's say that's called the Pinchas Shavui. That's all you're supposed to take into battle and case you're captured. Let's say you forgot to take out your regular Tudat Sabah, your regular army uh, card, your regular army little booklet, your Pinchas Koger, Pinchas Katsin. Let's say they find personal letters in your pocket. Letters addressed to you. So, Ravavadja says that this is the greatest proof you are the person. Even if you were to lend out the pants, even if Chayshin and L'Shayla, you're worried, it makes sense. A guy was going out on a date, his pants were stained, didn't look nice, says to his roommate, lend me your pants to have a nice crease, they look nice. Excuse me? 
no one's no no one's going to lend out their pants with their personal papers in it. That's what Rabbi could. We'll talk about that next year. Yes, Rabbi Shem, what you're saying has truth too. But even if it could be possible, the guys. That, I mean, uh, remember, lend out pants. A skinny guy borrows a fat guy. A fat guy borrows a skinny guy. It's not not going to work. But let's say the guy has your bill. But no one is going to lend out pants with his documents in it, his wallet in it, his personal effects in it, his letters from his girlfriend, his letters from his wife, his tudat choger, atkidekach. So Ravavadja paskins lahalacha with all the problems of chayshin and l'shela, but under such circumstances, if the body cannot be identified any other way, and this is what we find the person's pocket on these items, lo chayshin and l'shela, and if paskins l'halacha, it's a simin mufak, and we can be matir, the aguna l'halacha ulamaisa. My dear students, I've only scratched the surface. I'm changing my whole format of teaching uh, next August and I'll explain it in detail when I meet with the Kolel to start my 41st year of teaching Torah. God should keep us in health and strength. Uh, I want to reiterate what we did tonight. We finished out with Yitzchal Hanan. We started the Yom Kippur War. I gave my introduction, which is basically Rav Ovadia's introduction, describing the horrendous way the war broke out. Literally, we went from Yom Kippur to the battlefield, helter skelter. So many agunot. We dealt essentially today with the dog tag. As far as I know, this is the first time the dog tag has ever been dealt with in halachic literature on this level. And then we went where there was no dog tag, as often happened in the Yom Kippur War, because people came, held the skelter, ran on Yom Kippur. Who knows what they did take, what they didn't take. It was an unbelievable, terrible, terrible experience. Imagine people had to take tefillin on Yom Kippur, to have tefillin the next day in battle, because if you don't have tefillin, you can't fight, your morale is broken. The Rabbanu Wamate take the tefillin on Yom Kippur, even though it's Chachana Lachal, even though it's Muqsaya, you can't imagine the Shailat, the Shailat that came up, low Alaynu, what we went through on that fateful Yom Kippur. And that's why, from that time on in Yom Kippur, I never answered questions, never sat around. After Musaf, I would go home, go to sleep. I always was in a pachad, reliving the feeling of our discussion on uh, land for peace and peace for land, etc. Gentlemen, we have spent an entire year devoted to our gunat. And as much as we devoted ourselves, we still have not finished the topic. Be'ezrat Hashem, I would not miss next year's class in Makarot Balacha for all the money that the rabbinet can pay me in America, we will finish out Agunat, and then we will deal with Mam Zayrat. Tomorrow's class, I wouldn't miss for all the votes that Barak will get. Why? You will hear Rabbi Israel Miller discussing the Rav in a rare interview that he didn't want played until 50 years from now, but it's worth your while hearing it and seeing the rough from his vantage point, and it's an amazing document 
from an eyewitness who was close to the Rav from the point of view of the active rabbinate and the Rabbinical Council of America. It's an amazing document that complements and supplements everything you've heard from me and heard from others about the Rav. In the Hashkafa tomorrow, I end out the Shia, Jack, you're being paged to the Bar Mitzvah. Send my regards and give Mazel Tov because uh, I believe it's a, a son of students of mine, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and and no, other part of the family, it's, uh, it, well, he was sitting next to me in the Sukkot in Merkaz Klita when I opened the letter I got from the Rav. We were sitting and shaking together as I opened the letter in 1969. He couldn't believe it, and I, and I was shaking. It's my Rebbe's letter, and asking if he remembers how he opened the letter from the Rav in the Sukkah, in the Absorption Center, 1969. My dear friends, tomorrow in the Hashkafa, I'm going out banging and shooting and hitting on all syllables, on all cylinders. A Rebbe, students who shame him, students who make him proud, and students with a question mark. Only the future will tell. Until we meet again in health and happiness, Dina Metachin should be a good to better for all of us. Should go before the Kisei covered. What a carbon, what a sacrifice. What an Akedat Yitzchak. But God evidently needed that pure soul more than we needed her here. And she should be a Melitza Yotcha for her husband who's a tzaddik who stood by her, never left her with all the heartache of the last few years, married just four, four and a half months. Her parents should find solace, her siblings, her Rebbe, her acquaintances, and she should change our destiny. One Sadekit perhaps can do it all. Until we meet again in health and happiness, Dasvadanya. Thank you very much. Brüchen Theo, Brüchen Theo.